Anyone's Game podcast. Following women's football. Hello and a warm welcome to the Anyone's Game podcast. We're back with another episode to review the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup semi-finals from France. Joining me again is Campbell Finlayson and Chris Marshall to review the semi-finals. Hello to you both. Hello, hello. Hi there, guys. Tuesday night's first semi-final saw us learn that the United States of America are our first finalists of the 2019 Women's World Cup after a 2-1 victory over England. An incident-packed match in Lyon in front of a crowd of just over 53,000 for England against the USA. Where do we start with this one? Maybe with the team lines. It's maybe a good place to start with this one because I thought there was obviously... The USA was fairly settled, but England made... A few changes and a couple of changes you weren't expecting. So they had uh, Karen Barsley, um, who wasn't billed as 100% fit, came out and Carly Telford came in. And they also looked like Rachel um, Daly came in to push Lucy Bronze further up the park, even though realistically those two are probably normally the other way around. Um, and you had Beth Mead coming back into for uh, Fran Kirby. So immediately I was curious to see how it was going to go because it looked like there was a bit of uh, gamesmanship. Kristen Press came in for the USA as well. She obviously had an impact at the start. But what was your take on the starting lineup? Because it definitely made it interesting before a ball had even been kicked. I think you're right. I mean, England seemed to almost be setting up kind of to stop the US attacking them. And then obviously Megan Rapino not starting was kind of one no one really expected. So, I mean, Kristen Press obviously proved to be yeah, a decent replacement for her. But England almost set up rather. Instead of, instead of trying to play their own game, it was just to stop the US playing, and that's not normally a tactic that works. Yeah, I was really surprised considering you're going to a semi final. I mean, starting off with the USA to, to not have Megan Rapino in the starting lineup. She's been such an influential figure throughout from the very beginning, but maybe getting into a bit too much in in the media over recent days with the, the kind of White House visit being a, being a big topic as well. So I didn't know if it was something just to, to take her out of the picture and extinguish a little bit of the heat that was on her. Um, The England one, I was willing to wait and see how it played out. I wasn't really sure if it was going to be a a masterstroke from Phil Neville or if it was something that was maybe going to backfire a little bit. But when you look at both the the starting lineups, I wouldn't say backfired for England, but it certainly sort of disrupted what felt like in the momentum. Yeah, I think that's probably... And I think you saw that at the start of the game as well. USA were all over England for, well, basically up until they, they scored the opener. Um, the England just didn't seem like they were organised or they, they could get the ball out of their kind of, their third. Um, down both sides of Demi Stokes, so I was, I, I, I was um, surprised, was still getting game time, and she seemed to be getting quite a lot of praise in the commentary over here on uh, on Tuesday night. Um, but I was surprised she came in because I thought she had a, a pretty tough time um, against Norway, and it was down her side that the cross for the goal came. It was down that side, yeah. I'm just trying to get my goals right around. Um, so it was down her side that the, the cross for the goal came and she just didn't get close enough. Um, and the ball came in, Kristen Press dropping off the back of Lucy Bronze, who lost her. Um, and a good header, Carly Telford made a, made a good effort at it, couldn't get it in. But I think that first 10 minutes, USA were very much deserving of it in England, just, just didn't get out of the blocks at all. One thing we spoke about on the quarter-final review podcast episode was that England, had they really been tested defensively, we weren't too sure. And, and you did say, Chris, that you were a bit unsure on the, the, the kind of centre-back partnership, I think, that, you know, Houghton had 
proved herself time and time again, but as a partnership and as a unit, you weren't quite sure how when they stand up. That, that first goal, it felt like everybody was just watching the ball float over their head. Yeah, it was a bit like that. And I think as well that that, that side of the pitch um, with Demi Stokes and Millie Bright, and I'm pretty sure we'll talk, we'll talk about Millie Bright later on and probably in a bit more depth as well. But I just felt like that's where the USA were going to get a lot of their joy earlier on down that side. Um, and it kind of proved to be the case. Um, obviously, the other side was just as culpable, I think, for this goal in first because all the ball shouldn't have got in. When the ball got over there, you had um, you had Lucy Brown to come way in and just kind of lost lost where she was. And maybe that was because of the way that they'd set up with her and Rachel Daly maybe interchanging a little bit, and it kind of threw them off. So I think that was part of it as well. It was just a really sloppy goal overall for England to concede. And even after that goal, it still took them a wee while to really get going in the game. One thing that was spoken about after the game, Campbell, was were the changes that Phil Neville had made to the lineup. Was Paris going to be playing a little bit more central, which was a, a strange one to think of, considering how good she's been playing out in the right and how she's terrorised some defences, including Scotland earlier in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, as I say earlier on, England seemed to just change their total tactics. I mean, it was set up as a four-four-two by FIFA, but I think it was more that sort of four-two-three-one when Nikita Paris was dropping back. But she was a lot more central and. I just think England shot themselves in the foot by changing the way they were they played throughout the tournament. I mean, it worked so well up to this stage. Only conceded one goal. They were scoring plenty of them. So I guess it's Americans, and obviously they're going to pick you off if you really go for them. But why not keep the same formation? Stick with what you know. I mean, England had chances, obviously, with what they played. But I think if they just stuck to the same formation they'd had for the game, so obviously against Alexa Norway beforehand, then they could easily have caused the, the Americans problems. I mean, there was a start early on in the game wasn't long after the US had scored, I think, where England had had, they did more of the possession, completed over 100 more passes, yet only had one shot, compared to the US's four. They just seem to be doing nothing with the ball. And I think that's partly due to the fact they had changed the formation and went getting players like Nikita Paris actually on the ball to get in the middle for it, Ellen White. Ten minutes in, it starts to look bad because USA continue their gr- their brilliant record of scoring early against every team they've played against at the World Cup so far. But England got it back, Ellen White... Again, we've seemed to have spoken about nearly every episode how great her scoring form has been continuously scoring when England line up, gets the batch level again after the, the 19th, 20th minute. So spoke about a little bit about Press's goal. Moving on to Ellen White, who do you want up top? Ellen White, surely, every time. Yeah, um, and again, you could maybe question the, the USA defence. Uh, Sal Brown and Del Kemper were maybe a little bit kind of caught, but... I think I mentioned it in the last pod, I think I mentioned it in the pod before that, and I think I mentioned it in the pod when we talked about the Scotland game. It's Ellen White's movement in the box. Um, she doesn't do. She doesn't have to do lots, but what she does do is enough to give her some space and then her finishing. I saw a couple of people saying, oh, she sliced it. I'm not sure she did. I think when you look at it, she was tracking that ball as soon as it left her foot in terms of where she was wanting to put it. And it was a really good finish. It kind of gave uh, nah, her no chance really to save it. Yeah, and to be fair, that, that came from some good work down the side. It was maybe one of the sides, the side of the pitch that they were also having trouble with. So it kind of comes back to that original point. Is were they, would have England been better off starting on the front foot like they have done in every other game instead of trying to temper what they do to combat the USA? But it was a good goal. It did kind of come out of nowhere. I thought it was a bit kind of like, oh, it's, it's one each. And, and I think there was a little bit of that on the pitch as well, especially from, from the US. But um, that seem to then set a, a really good game in motion, I think. 
Campbell that as soon as USA scored, I think people maybe didn't feel the worst for England, but they thought it was game over. They thought, right, early goal. We know we've seen this script before with the United States in a World Cup match, scoring early, going on to win the game. But that goal just had to wake United States up again because they had to get going. All right, they, they go back and lead about 10, 11 minutes later. But again, it's USA coming straight back. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to fear the worst, but because every game, apart from the Spain game, when they have scored early, they've run away with it. But Spain were the only team prior to England to actually cause them problems following losing the goal. They obviously lost the goal early, but got one back through uh, Jenny Hermoso. And they really made it tough for the US. And probably unlucky, actually, not to get through or at least get the extra time in that game. So the fact that England got to go back again so quickly, it, it did make a difference to them. It meant they could try and play a bit more. And as we say, they controlled the possession for quite a lot of that first half, but it was just what they were doing with the ball, and they simply didn't create enough after they scored. And as we see, obviously, when you get back to level with the US, Spain held out to way through in the second half, whereas England, as you're seeing, they only managed 12 minutes before Alex Morgan put the Americans back in front again. And from that point on, America seemed to just want to sit back like they had done against France, not concede a goal. And then obviously, in the end, they were extremely lucky to get away with it, but probably deserved on the whole to just about edge past England. And if Ellen White's always in the right place at the right time for England, then it's Alex Morgan to be in the right place at the right time for USA to put them back in the lead. That was a, a brilliant goal, a beautiful goal from Alex Morgan, Chris. Oh, it was a fantastic header. I think with Alex Morgan, um, that was her first goal since the Thailand game when she scored five. But I think what Alex Morgan brings to the, the USA party, shall we say, um, I'm not saying Miley Ray Cyrus and go party in the USA because that's, that's a different tangent to go down and this isn't a music podcast. But um, what she does bring, she brings... She just holds the ball up, she runs, she's physical. Um, I think as we talk about the towards the end of the game, she just, she gives a focal point. She doesn't always do tons with it, but she's great at breaking in the play. She's a lot bit cynical. She's streetwise. We've talked a lot about game management and being savvy. There are so many times in that game where Alex Morgan just, you know, did, did a wee snidey thing, but nothing, nothing bad, but just enough to kind of break up play or break up momentum. But, She's there to be a goal scorer, and that was a fantastic head. A really good cross. Again, should that cross have really come in? Probably not. But uh, you can't take anything away from the header. Was was top stuff, and obviously that's our sixth goal of the tournament, which at the moment is joint top goal scorer with Ellen White. When the cross came in for the goal, the one thing I thought immediately after her scoring was that she she seems to score all kinds of goals. Yeah, she's a goal scorer, but like everything's different from the the two towards the end of the Thailand game. Completely different this time, making that run into the box. I thought I'd shades of Cristiano Ronaldo about it. Just the 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 leap into the air and the power in the header and the, just the way she directed the ball towards goal. I thought it was an absolutely beautiful header. Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of different types of goals. Funnily enough, I was just watching back over the old finals before we started recording and she scored in the, the 2012, no, 13 final, sorry, against Japan uh, when Japan won in penalties and she actually came on as a substitute and scored that wonderful angle goal. And you're right, she does score all these types of goals. And I can see where you're going with this Cristiano Ronaldo comparison because I think that's probably where subconsciously my head was going about the strong running and the the ability to keep the ball and bring other people into play, but also do the kind of, the grubby bit a little bit as well. And yeah, she's she's a fantastic player. And when you think she's keeping a player like Carly Lloyd out, who, yeah, is a bit more experienced, but she's keeping Carly Lloyd out of the team. You've got to acknowledge how good she is. Was there a little bit of um, also CR7 arrogance in her celebration? I noticed you was put on Twitter, Chris. Was that a, a sip of tea that she just took? I've got plenty of time for, for, for that kind of thing in the game. 
I'd, I love it. See if, to be fair, see if she blasted bust the bagpipes against Scotland. That probably would have found it hysterical as well. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, the funniest bit about it was the outrage. Well, the full outrage from people after it. Um, but yeah, I, football's meant to be fun. I, I, that that was fun. So yeah, I'm, I'm cool with that. When I tweeted about it, I tweeted a video from someone in BN Sports, I think, who was saying it was a bit distasteful. And they went on to say, she obviously knows that our English people love her tea. And then her next sentence was, I don't like tea myself. And you're thinking, you're really just talking a lot of nonsense here. There's nothing wrong with the celebration. I mean, it's the same players score against their old clubs and then out of respect don't celebrate. I think you should just go for it. I mean, I should really have done anything wrong. No. If England win that game, are they going to be complaining about it? No. You just need to get on with it. I mean, even at the end, Phil Neville, towards that of his interview, was speaking higher than I thought. He sounds pretty good here. And then his next sentence, he went on to just start slating the referee. And you're thinking, the referee didn't have a bad game at all the other night. So just just go with graffiti, with your defeat gracefully, as every other team besides Cameroon, obviously, has done. I just thought it was a bit a bit poor from England, to be perfectly honest. I don't think there's anything wrong with the celebration. wasn't anything wrong when Nikita Paris started winding up the Scottish players after just going to the opening game. So... I think you just have to go on with it, really. It was yeah, it was Leanne Sanderson on on the video that was that was talking about that. Who is a massive wind up merchant herself, which I found because I, I saw that as well, and I thought that was pretty funny because she is she's known for being a bit of a wind up merchant as well. So um, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. So is it just is it just because it's the USA? You know, you get these top teams who are winning things, such a great record in the World Cup. Everyone wants to beat them. They're the, the team to beat. And it just stings a little bit when you when you come on the receiving end of a goal, losing a goal or or the defeat to them. Is that all that is? I think it's pure frustration, to be perfectly honest, by the end of it. Even the Millie Bright challenges we'll go on to. Again, it's just keep your head. And I mean, England were going crazy when Cameroon did. Obviously, England went quite to the same level, but Cameroon sort of lost the head a bit and the England were complaining. They've done the exact same against the US and have just done nothing but moan about it. You just need to go with it. You're not going to win every game. When you lose, you have to accept it. And I don't think England did. I think the only thing I would add to that, though, is I think the US, because the USA only lost one game in 44, we don't really know. But I suspect that if that game was the other way around and the USA were getting beat, they would be probably even more so um, um, affronted by anything very minor. Um, just to nature it. And I think that's probably... Maybe part of just the perception of these teams at the moment in terms of outside of the two bubbles that they, they live in. And to be fair, I think the USA are aware of their, their perception outside the team. I, I think I've said before that when I was over there and I was in the stadium for the USA-Chile game, there was like lots of good stuff, but there was also lots of stuff that was a bit eye-rolling. So yeah, I think it's just kind of the perception. And I think if that had been another team doing that, I don't think England would have got as upset. No, I think you're right, Chris, as well. I mean, obviously, if you've seen a few USA losing that, then they would have reacted the same, and I'd be saying the same thing now. That you just have to get on with it, but because I mean, these are some two of the biggest club, uh, two of the biggest countries, sorry, in women's football, and they're not used to losing. So when they do lose, they're clearly not reacting in the best sort of way. I mean, just, it's, at the end of the day, it's a game of football, and I mean, before you know it, they're going to have forgot, forgotten it. But again, as you said, America, I think you've been in this sort of bubble, and I think it was Megan, might be, might actually be Alex Morgan. One of the players was saying prior to the World Cup or prior to this game. That anything less of than playing the World Cup home's a failure. You understand that, but it was saying we're better than everyone. We know we're better than everyone. Yes, they are, but to some teams, England possibly included, it maybe seems a bit disrespectful there. So moving back onto the twists and turns of the game into the second half, 
what I thought at the time was going to be a beautiful goal, mainly because of the assist from Jill Scott flicking the ball through to Ellen White. She thought she'd equalised. VAR steps in again. She's marginally offside, which I felt at the time was quite harsh because purely for Jill Scott's little flick through ball with the toes, I wanted that to actually stand because it would have set up a brilliant end as well. But I thought the assist was exquisite if it would have, it would have been on record and stood as a goal. Yeah, I've, I've got like that Jill Scott pass was was as you say exquisite. And let's be honest, the finish from Ellen White was um, really good as well. I think she had this. I mean, to be fair, when when they obviously showed the decision on on VAR and that she was offside, it was like half a boot. Now, to be fair, it's a boot going towards goal, so that feels more justified than the odd shoulder that's offside. But um, I think Ellen White wasn't super convinced she was definitely onside just because. The specs were kind of on and off quite quickly, as opposed to the, the full beans that she's been giving it throughout the tournament. White gets a, another chance in the box. She's about to make contact with the ball, and I never had any doubt that the offside goal was going in the net. And I thought if she was getting her side foot onto this, it was going to end up in the net as well. But she's prevented from doing so, hits the deck, penalties given after after the VAR review. Any complaints about the decision? Yes. I mean, <laughs> seeing it back. I don't think Becky Sauber intentionally fouls her, even if she does make any contact. I mean, it just seemed as if Ellen White totally misses the ball. I mean, as you're saying, they expect her to score these things, and that kind of maybe think makes you might think there was a lot of a lot of contact there. But I really don't think there's enough to send her to the floor. I mean, I, I thought it was harsh. Going on to the penalty, obviously, it was, a, it was a terrible penalty from Steph Orton, really. But it was given, obviously, and it's a great, great chance for England. Maybe she doesn't like penalties when that's been discussed, or maybe she doesn't want to take them, but. She's a joint up scorer, as we say. Could have went out right there. Show them the confidence she's in. You'd have thought she would have taken it and scored on the decision. I think it's harsh, but I'm sure you two disagree. I, I, I think it's a penalty. Initially, I, I was surprised, as, as you both were, when she didn't put it away. Um, and it took a wee while to kind of click what happened. But I think what happened to Sarah Brown did that, did that, that classic kind of running behind somebody. And it happens a lot in the middle of the park. See, when you think about cynical fouls when somebody's on the breakaway, that's kind of running across. Now, I don't think it was as clear-cut deliberate in this instance, but because of the contact that Sauberin makes with with uh, Ellen White's leg, it makes it impossible for her to get a clean shot at the goal when she's clean through. And I think the fact that Sauberin's reaction after the penalty was given, where she just took it and she took her booking, I think that really tells you all you need to, need to know about it. But uh, on the actual penalty itself, yeah, so Steph steps up and takes it. She scuffs it. I've, I've, I was watching it back before we started recording just to get, kind of get my head back in it again. And she kind of actually scuffed it. I didn't realise it at the time. I just thought it was really poorly hit. But she, she almost like scuffs it at the start and that makes it pretty easy safe for Naya. But yeah, Ellen White should have hit that. And it was interesting. Hope Solo said something after the game. Um, I go back and forth on whether Hope's, I, I like what Hope Solo says or not. But this was quite good. I like this. And she was talking about Amy Wambach and how there was a, a tournament, maybe in a World Cup to be honest with you, where Amy Wambach didn't want to take the penalties. And she was basically told, no, you're taking the penalty. And she scored it. And I feel like that's maybe something that needed to happen with Ellen White because she has done it. There was a video doing the rounds afterwards where she'd taken a penalty, I think it was for Birmingham, um, and she'd taken a penalty and a penalty shootout to win the game for them. So she she has done that. And I think maybe the the approach by Phil Neville, maybe, I, I don't know exactly, obviously the nice and ice can't work all the time. But I just wonder if somebody had said, no, you are a, you are a woman, you are a foreign player, you have scored all our goals, you could have had two of this, it could have been your hat-trick. I just feel like that, that emphasis should have been put on her to kind of take that moment and grab it by the hand. 
I still have splinters from being on the fence, Campbell, because even by the end of the VAR replays, I still hadn't made my mind up when it was a penalty or not. My first thought was it wasn't because she's brought her leg back and she's actually made contact more with the defender rather than it being a challenge or a tackle and it shouldn't be a penalty. But then I had a word with myself and said, right, well, how is Ellen White meant to put that in the net if she could barely swing the boot back just to kind of get a enough on it to place it or to just redirect into the net, whatever you needed to happen. So I think by the end of it, I edged towards penalty. But with Ellen White, when when Steph Houghton stepped up, I thought she was still scoring from the free kick in the box that she scored, where she just powered it into the bottom corner. It took a little bit of deflection to go in. Was that, was that against Norway or... Cameron, Cameron for the back pass, yeah. Um, So when she stepped up, I thought she's just going to blast this in the net. And it was just a bit half-hearted that she changed her mind on the run-up. That's kind of what it looked like to me at the same time. But Ellen White, most of her goals this tournament just seem to be kind of like low drives where she sticks it under the keeper, she kind of places it in a corner. It just the, The types of goals that she scored this tournament, to me, felt like she would be the one to just get a penalty low enough where it's hard for maybe the keeper to get down to it. Just, just the way she, she strikes a shot, I agree. The way she's performing in the, the, the golden boot charts and the kind of type of goals that she scores that you have to give it to her. And she's the one with all the all the momentum and all the confidence putting goals in every match. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's the confidence for me. How could she not step up to that? She could go up and say, oh, I could miss this and this is all over. But... You couldn't, if you were thinking of an England player, if you were watching that game blind for the first time, even that one game, using that game as a microcosm, and you were watching that game, and you had never seen a game of football before in your life, and England got that penalty, and you said, right, this penalty basically is a free shot at goal. Almost everybody would have said Ellen White would be the one stepping up and taking it, but she didn't. Steph Houghton did. She has taken penalties before in the past. Um, as I said, I think she scuffed it, which made it so poor, but yeah. Um, that felt a bit like a missed opportunity to be honest uh, for England at that point If the the defeat wasn't guaranteed before as soon as Melly Bright receives the red card that's pretty much nailing the coffin and clinched the victory for USA because you couldn't really see England getting the equaliser after that could you? No I mean it's, it's a horrendous tackle really when you see it back again I mean she's way over the top of the ball does right on Alex Morgan's shin and it was just it wasn't nice at all I mean, even even the commentators who have been getting a lot of stick from certain folk for being sort of English, biased towards the English, even more so than you may get other commentators apparently. But um, even they were saying it was it was a red card. It was it should have been a straight red. Although then they did change back the same with the first one. Shouldn't have been a booking. But even looking back at the first one, that was another one on Alex Morgan. It was one of these ones where they sort of swing their arm back, and it's another one of these debates that really could go either way. Folk will say that's a booking. It's not a booking, but it's the sort of tackle that usually when you do that, you're given a yellow card anyway. And then the second one, as we say, it's just ridiculous from there. Millie Bright, it was deservedly a red card. I, th- I think the thing for me with the, the first booking um, is there's a bit of inconsistency. Lindsay Horan was swinging her arm about just as much as Millie Bright was when she kind of took a chunk out of Jill Scott's face. And she didn't get booked for it at the time. Um, but yeah, I think t- to be fair, I think that the, the Millie Bright cha- challenge should have been a red card straight away. And I wonder if it. If it hadn't, she hadn't been in yellow weather, would have been given a straight red because it was a shocking tackle. So over the ball, as you say, it was down Alex Morgan's shin. It was frustration. It was a bit immature. I know that seems a daft thing to say, but it was. It was clearly a, an act that wouldn't have happened if England hadn't just missed a penalty 
and want to win down with five minutes to go in a, a World Cup semi-final. So it's a fifth final for USA after beating England 2-1 in the semi-final in Lyon. One of my English friends that I was speaking to on Facebook suggested that Scottish people should actually be looking for England women to win the World Cup because then that would improve the women's game at home. So obviously well, that's not no, going to happen because no, they went I'm not, out. I'm not even letting you finish that, Stuart, because there's two things with that. First of all, on the commentary thing, I meant to say this, I actually don't mind partisan commentary when it's for when it's for, for my nation. My, my issue with it is that there wasn't an, an alternative for people that don't support England on a UK scale. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but that, that is my issue with that. You just have to listen to the conversations after the game for England-USA. It wasn't a conversation about football in the UK. It was a conversation about the WSL and growing the game in England, which is fine because it was an England-USA game. My big thing with this is the conversation in Scotland has already disappeared. So already it feels like you're pushing against the tide and it's only two weeks since Scotland were in the World Cup. So I think your man's point about Scotland should support England, no, I, I don't buy that, sorry. But I think the bigger it's issue is actually, Scotland. yeah, well, exactly. But the bigger issue is that the conversation in Scotland seems to have already died on its arse. One of the points that he made was that with the number of players that have went down to the WSL recently, it's helping Scottish players go down there, progress. And you've got like Caroline Weir and I could you know, go through so many of the names from Hibs that have went down, Kirsty Smith and so on, but that they were then being introduced into the WSL and the English women's football game and then they're being progressed with the opposition and the, the, the higher standard and level. But even on that, you still totally disagree. Well... That's like saying, well, we should want the, SPAC, the USA game to do well because Rachel Corson's playing in Utah. It's it's a Scottish players don't have to go just to England. Yes, it's the easiest transition, but we've had Lee Alexander's went and played in Sweden. Kim Little's played all over the world, so I don't think a strong WSL necessarily means a strong Scotland. Um, I think I think there's an argument there of trying to appease a little bit, but I can see the point. I, I do see the point, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it's quite similar actually to the Scottish men's game. The amount of players here that you hear coming to Scotland, oh my aim is to do well at such and such a club and then go on and play in the Premier League. It's the same with the Women's Super League. That's, it's clearly a bigger league than SWPL. So, I mean, it's the aim for a lot of these players that when they're growing up and obviously they want to break into Hibs or Glasgow City or teams like that, Rangers, Celtic, and then go down to the likes of these teams down south. But I mean, I kind of agree with Chris's point as well. You're not really wanting to be saying that Scotland, eh, but what Scotland's been wanting England to win, sorry, because it's going to improve our players down there. I don't really think it's going to make that much of a difference. So you just have, again, let's just let them go on with the WSL, sorry, and just kind of not focus so much on Scotland. Although in Scotland, let's say the Scottish media has got to focus a bit more on the game up here because, as Chris says, it has just totally disappeared. Yeah, maybe brings me a bit on to my next point then. So after the semi-final in England going out, a lot of the banter turned towards the the whole Scotland England rivalry. Is was did, will that turn out to be a good thing? Could that be a good thing for women's football? Because there's people obviously watching a tentative. You know, is it has it kind of raised the profile a bit in that, or is that just Scotland v England and it'll be forgotten about again by these people as soon as the the World Cup's over? No, I think it will be forgotten about. I mean, the folk that were across in Nice watching that Scotland-England game, the majority of them would have been women's football followers previous to the World Cup anyway. A lot of people you'll see on Twitter and things like that are folk that have never watched a game of women's football in their life until they saw Scotland-England. And they'll go on and talk about that simply due to the rivalry. You'll see a lot of folk as well, having seen these interviews and obviously Ellen White being in tears and things like that at full time, 
and folk really just pretty much just take the piss and just saying look it's funny and things at the end of the day these are people too I know I'm not what I sound like but no it shouldn't be slating them it can be fun to have that rivalry but these people are never going to care again until maybe the next World Cup Scotland qualify for so half of these people put in the same amount of effort they do into moan about it now you actually went to watch the local SWPL side then it would make a difference I, I, I kind of agree but don't necessarily I think there are new women's football fans I think the difference though is and it was I think it was Jackie Oatley that put it on, on Twitter and uh, I hard agreed with it which was that, that I think the issue that we're facing at the moment with women's football particularly in Scotland is that it's turning into a television event as opposed to a live event so the exception of obviously Scotland in the World Cup but we three know that the attendances at the SWPL would it should embarrass actually some of the clubs if I'm if I'm being honest and that is no slight on the players or the coaches or the people involved in those sides but I'm talking about your Rangers and Celtics who have a women's side who have 50 folk turning up at it uh, on a on a Sunday afternoon um, so yeah uh, I, I kind of see where, where Campbell's coming from with it but I think there has definitely been new fans I know from conversations I've had with people that they have not just stopped watching because it's Scotland are out they have watched it all the way through and at the end of the day, if the positivity continues, if we get a good start to the campaign against Cyprus in August, then that, that can only be a good thing. But it's about keeping it in the public consciousness. And that I think that is a big effort for the next month or so in the fact that the, the Euro under-19s is, is in Scotland uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Is there really another good opportunity to do that? And obviously, as, as we also know, to show the talents available at the SWPL because that squad bar two players is entirely SWPL made. If you're screaming at your radio in the car or you're, you're sitting with your headphones on, you're screaming with your opinion on the, the WSL debate or what the, the SWPL can do going forward, then you can get in touch with Andrew Anyone's Game on Twitter and I'm sure that's something we could talk about. So that's England 1, USA 2. That was Tuesday night semi-final. We then moved on to Wednesday night. Second semi-final was Holland against Sweden. This one finished 1-0 and, and took a little bit of time to get going. Would that be the right thing to say, Campbell? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was talking to Chris during the first half and he described it as underwhelming. I think he hit the nail on the head with that because it was two sides that have been good to watch throughout the tournament. They're not two of the main favourites for the, the to win the thing overall, but you thought right, they'll both go out and just try and play their football and just we could have a good game high scoring here, but both seemed very tentative, very nervous by the occasion almost and there wasn't really much happened in the first half. I think it was Neil Fisher had a quite a shot that was straight at the leg of Sally Van Benendal. And that was kept out, but not really much happened. It was obviously in the second half. There was a couple of great saves again. It was a Fisher shot. It's when Vena Dog getting a finger on the post there. It's a fantastic save. And then uh, Vivian Miedema had the head, tipped on the bar by Hedvig Lindahl at the end. Really, there wasn't much that did happen. And I think Chris's description was pretty much spot on. Yeah, it was underwhelming. I think what, what was immediately apparent quite early on was that they both looked pretty shattered. Earlier on, um, I think especially the Dutch. I thought the Dutch, um, Sweden, kind of went about went about their game. Um, they're they're not they've not been flashy. I think Campbell's right. I think Sweden have played some good stuff. I've been really impressed with Jacobson up front and um, uh, a couple of the other attacking players. Asselani uh, was obviously their kind of driving force. But um, I thought the Dutch were really slack, especially in the final third. Um, I thought Van de Donk was. Um, her, her battle with Asselari I think was actually probably the highlight of maybe the first 99 minutes of the game um, because those two were at each other it was quite head to head I was actually speaking to somebody in the office today about it and they were saying oh those two were going at it all game and that, that made a good spectacle but I also think that there was some some really good defending in there 
I think underwhelming in terms of the spectacle it was, but it was one of those games that see if you switch on your kind of analytical hat, it was it was a very interesting one to watch. I thought Bloodworth uh, was was excellent in defence again for the Netherlands. And as as Campbell says, the two saves for Van Beendal were um quality, especially the set, the, the second one from uh, Fisher where she pushed it onto the post. Um I think that was that was po- possibly key in turning the momentum as well, I think, because towards the end of the game it seemed to be like I'd I'd, I'd be interested to get your take on it. I thought actually from about 80 minutes on, all of a sudden they all broke into life a little bit. Um, I don't, I don't really know what caused that because you would have thought, given how cagey had been up until that point, that would just continue. But I thought from 80 minutes on, we actually had a bit of a game in our hands. I actually thought it was Van de Sonden coming up the pitch that, that kind of got things going because she was getting the crowd going. The, the Holland fans raised the roof when she came on. She just We spoke about Wendy Renard before, how a bit of a cult hero she is. She's definitely got to be Holland's. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, she she had that shot that uh, Lundahl just kind of batted away a little bit. Um, she still wasn't super productive. She's she's had a funny tournament. She seems to have had the ball a lot, but I think her, her output is probably not what she would have wanted it to be. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why she didn't start uh, on on Wednesday night, to be perfectly honest with you. But you're right, she came on, she was running fresh legs, uh, as, as I suggested. They, they both looked quite tired for most of the game. Um, up until kind of towards the end and she added a bit of extra impetus and you're right, she was rallying the crowd so by all means she's, she certainly added a bit to it. I think you're right in what you're saying about the the little battles with, with Aslani and Van de Donk because when you started to feel maybe your eyes just drift away from the TV it felt like you were trying to look for something and it was those little individual one-on-one battles across the pitch you, you had to kind of pick out just to see what was, was causing things to be so tense and both teams failing to, to get the breakthrough but again someone else you mentioned there is the, the saves I mean that one from from Fisher was 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 brilliant because towards the end of extra time there where Gronin gets the, the winner for Holland it was a similar kind of drive Yeah it, it really was and I think as I said I think that maybe f- flipped the momentum I think that was a, almost like the, the lucky not the lucky escape because as we've said it's a, an excellent save from Van Wienendal but I think that's a kind of like the close escape that's the word I was looking for um, that uh, the Netherlands maybe needed to jolt them a little bit because they were trying things it just wasn't coming off obviously Leaky Martins went off at half time as well she I'm, I'm assuming she was canning in. She actually haven't seen much after that to kind of confirm one way or the other, but she looked really off the pace. And I thought Bierenstein, um, as you say, who was taking off for Van Descending, I thought she was very disappointing. But yeah, that it just I think the battles is what kept it going uh, as the game progressed. And I think you're right because you were looking for them and you were looking them for kind of across the whole pitch. On the, the other side, in, in the other box, it was Miedema's header that was tipped onto the bar as well. That, that As you were saying, it kind of happened just as Holland were, were waking up. and I, th- I thought that was in. Just when the ball came off her head, I just thought there was no doubt about it, especially with Holland getting the, the, the two goals against Italy from sort of similar set-piece scenarios. Um, but another great stop. Yeah, there were some fantastic saves uh, in the game when there were chances created. Um I think Miedema gets it right back across into the corner, she's scoring there, but Lindahl does well to go back to battle to stop it. But I mean, as Chris was saying there, Nika Martin's coming off, I don't know if it was an injury or not, but she's sort of underwhelmed throughout the whole tournament for one of the, was the European Player of the Year recently, I think as well, a couple of years ago, sorry. Obviously won the tournament with the Dutch, but she was pretty poor. I think talking about Lennart Bierenstein, I think she's more, she's worked better coming off the bench, a bit like Van de Sanden did. Um, 
And that sort of disrupted. I mean, Van der Donk has been their main player in midfield. She even seemed off the pace a bit. Her passes were sort of slack. She didn't have the greatest of games, partly due also to the fact she was spending half the game eh, booting Kostovarius Lani around the park. She was really in the wars. As for Sweden, I think with Fridolina Rolfa being out, eh, and it was Lena Hurting, I think, replaced her and she wasn't quite the same at taking players on. And I think that's what the game lacked. If either side had a player that was taking folk on, that had sort of more fresh legs than the rest of them. Didn't look quite as tired and we may have a different game, but it's a great goal from Groenin to win it. I think if you'd had something like that earlier on, it would have opened the game up, but it was it was a poor spectacle overall. I think um, I think Leakey Martin's obviously had a, a key role in, in knockout um, Italy, but I think your point about running at players is, is a really good one, because as I said, I thought Jakobsen for Sweden was the only one that was doing it well. Hurtig... Um, was all right. She did her job, but I was surprised actually that it took so long for Yanogi to come on. Obviously, ten minutes to, as I said, just about when the Netherlands started to turn the tide a little bit. So I think I think that is a good point. I was actually kind of disappointed by Midema as well. Um, she obviously got into space to get that header that was well saved, but she had she played a good part in the goal. And as you say, Cam, it was a great goal, and it was kind of the three players that you're maybe expecting something to happen from that did. Van Donk played it into Midema. She showed good strength to kind of lay it onto Gronin and. That is, a, that is a kind of finish I love seeing see these as it skates along, along the tough and kind of goes straight into the corner. I mean, Lindau had pff, no chance with that. It was, it was a quality finish. But yeah, I think I think the stretching of the game naturally happened as tired, players became more and more tired. And I think it was just the case of Netherlands maybe, they dealt with it better. They they had, as you say, Van der Sanden, Ruud came on. I thought Ruud did all right as well when she came on for Martins at halftime. So I think that, that was really the, the turning point in terms of it just seems like the Netherlands found that second wind and that's something that they found a few times in this tournament. I mean, you think about the game against Japan and you think about the game as well against um, New Zealand right at the start. Um, so they, they've come good at the end a couple of times. My concern for them would be going into the final that they can't, I don't think they'll be able to afford to do that against USA. USA scored in the first 12 minutes of every game so far this tournament. If the USA do that again on Sunday, I, I'm not quite sure how Netherlands has come back from that. An interesting yeah. point as well, you, you make obviously the US have scored in the opening 12 minutes in every single game. The Dutch have been level at half-time in every single game as well. As you see, you cannot afford that slow start. If the US scored early on, as you say, Chris, then it could really be a long afternoon for the Dutch, especially as how tired they look on Wednesday night. And I mean, the extra half an hour really does make a difference. You're reading my mind, Campbell, because I was just going to move on to the fact that you know Holland were really lucky in the first game against New Zealand, getting the late header from from Ruud. Then it just feels it's been a game of two halves that they come out after half time, and eventually at some point they just lift it. They done the exact same against Italy there in the quarter final. You know they need to play ninety minutes in this final. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is why when I, I insinuated earlier on the two teams that USA probably wanted to face. They were probably more likely wanting to face Sweden because it's a bit more familiar. Sweden ha- play well, but they they're not as maybe don't have that that sprinkling of unpredictability about them that the Netherlands have. And if Netherlands get in front, which is a massive if, but if the Netherlands can get in front, I think they actually lead games well when they get in front. And I actually think the the prospect of having Miedema, hopefully a fit Martins, Van der Donk. Bienenstein or Van Descending almost to kind of soak up on the counter could really trouble the USA and something that we haven't talked about yet is Netherlands are actually I was going back watching all their games back before recording it because I wanted to make sure I was being fair in any assessments I was having of players and actually apart from a couple 
couple of iffy moments. The Netherlands defence has actually been really good. I think it's maybe been a bit underrated because you get so focused on that front kind of three four. There was a bit of a dampener at the end with Aslani getting taken off in a stretcher, which you know if you're already getting the the pain of of not making the World Cup final and having to settle for the third place match to see probably your star player be carried off in a stretcher ahead of that's a, a, a blow, big blow for Sweden and I'm sure we'll hope it's not serious but Sweden will really want her involved on Saturday against England to have all the, the best chance of, of taking that bronze medal. There was a, a tweet that went out uh, earlier on this afternoon that said the fact she's had a CTI and an MRI and she's, she's been told that it's nothing serious um, I didn't I didn't see whether that means that she, she'd be okay for the third fourth playoff but um, it was good to see that it wasn't serious because you're right it was a long time she was out for and it was obviously she was stretched off and it was a, a kind of clap off job as well it wasn't one of these she stands up again a minute later so it was good to see that it doesn't seem to be serious whatever it was if we just turn our attention to Saturday's match, Sweden against England, it's one of those fixtures that seems to pop up quite a lot in, in international football, whether it's men or women's football, and there's, there's always a, a tasty encounter on offer when, when both nations meet. How do you see it going on Saturday? Do you think there's going to be a, a, quite a bit of rotation from both sides, as you sometimes see in, in third-place matches, or both teams going to want to go and show that they, they are the, the third force after this World Cup? I think, I mean, I'd like to see some of the players that haven't been given an opportunity get a game, partly even just for them to say they've played at a World Cup. I mean, a third place game I always feel feels a bit pointless when both teams are sort of really disappointed they're not playing in the final the following day. Third, obviously, you can say you finished third at World Cup was great, but I think a lot of them, when you lose that semi-final, you'd rather just be on the plane home. So, I mean, I think I'd like to see both managers make some changes and just hopefully get players that will just go for the game, but as much as you look at a third place game and think maybe they'll just go and try and play football very rarely does it work like that so we'll see what happens I, th- I think it's a bit different um, they, there was a lot of chat from the England kind of players and team about how proud they were to put their bronze medal at the World Cup and I think I think third place isn't as jaded as it is with men's football at the moment and it could be purely because women's seasons tend to be a bit shorter everything's still a little bit newer and maybe over time it will become that same same thing um, I think there will be a rotation but I also suspect that England might win quite comfortably um, I just think Sweden have had have had a lot taken out over these last few games um, England have as well obviously but I just feel England will probably play a pretty strong team um, I think you'll probably see Ellen White start trying to get another couple of goals I'd be surprised I'm surprised if, if Sweden get the win, but they're still a good side, so it's not impossible. That brings us on to Sunday's World Cup final for 2019, which is set up as the United States of America against Holland. You know, one thing you're definitely going to get with this, and I hope I'm not jinxing it, is two brilliant attacking sides going at each other for the top spot of the best women's football nation in the world. I think one of the other things I'll be looking forward to as well, Campbell, is the crowd. You're going to have a lot of American fans there. You're going to, I would expect, have a lot of colourful Holland fans there, as we've seen for both teams throughout the tournament so far. Yeah, I mean, it's attracted the attention of locals as well. I think the tickets sold out pretty quickly when they went on sale for the general public a while back before the tournament there. It was obviously 53,512 at the England-USA game. You'd expect if it is sold out, as they tell us, then that'll be surpassed again. The Dutch support has been fantastic, especially the games, obviously, in Velocien that are right next to the border. But they brought a lot across the US as well. As Chris says, the game he was at and on the telly the other night, in pretty much every game, there's been tons of them as well. So I think it'll be, it'll be great to see, and it should be in a packed stadium full of colour, as you say. So hopefully both teams can put on a great show and really showcase what women's game is all about. 
most neutrals and most people still watching and tuning in on Sunday, I'm sure Chris are going to be expecting a USA win. But what do Holland have to do then to cause a bit of an upset and come out as the European champions and the, the world champions at the same time? I think we've already touched on it. I think they need to they need to start. Not even start quick. They just need to start. They can't let the USA get an early goal. USA have shown throughout that they can manage a game. We've said it so much, but manage a game. Clinical and cynical. That's that's how I would... Um, that was a kind of a phrase that went through when I was thinking about USA um, earlier on today. That they're clinical when they have the opportunities, but they're also wise enough to know when to play the game. And it's, it's a part of the game that happens. It's You can be as altruistic as you want about whether or not it's played in the spirit of the game. It's part of the game and it works. And they did it superbly against England the other night. They did it really well against France. And if they get in a position ahead of the Netherlands, they'll do it again. I've got no doubt about that. So I think the Netherlands to come out quick. I think it'll be interesting to see what... I think the Netherlands team probably picks itself. I think it'll just be dependent on fitness of a couple of players up, up the top. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the USA do, whether they, they stick with Kristen Press. I imagine... Megan Rapinoe will come back in, um, and I'm, I'd assume it would be Christian Press that come out. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, a, it's starting the game and making sure, as Campbell says, they're in it till half-time because, as we've all talked about, after half-time, the Netherlands have been a different side pretty much in every game. So if they're, if they're a level to half-time, then it becomes a case of who knows, but the USA are obviously massive favourites. They can't afford to lose an early goal. They need to get... The, the likes of Andy Dalt really need to try and control that midfield when they're on the ball. You need, obviously, Martins and probably Van der Sand you'd expect it to start. They need to uh, take players on when they get the ball. Don't be too sort of conservative about it. When you get forward and you create chances, you need to take your chances. But really, if, I mean, they have been pretty strong at the back overall. And if they can keep that up as well, then there's no reason why they can't beat the US. But it really, really will be a tough task. But the main aim has to be, look at the go right, first 15 minutes, let's not concede. If they get through that and they're creating a couple of chances, they must sneak a goal, then get into half time. But it's Chris as well. If they can get into half time at 0 0, they'll be full of confidence going into that second half, especially given how they've played pretty much every other game up to this point. I think the other thing as well is is about being up for the, the physical part of it. And I think a player like Daniel van der Donk will, I think, thrive in that scenario. And I think if they match up physically, which I was maybe a little bit disappointed with how England did it, I thought. Um, Jill Scott was a, has a really good player, but Kira Walsh, she's a she's a creator. I would have liked to see somebody maybe a bit more digging that midfield for England uh, the other night. Uh, but I think it's something the Dutch might match up quite well with. So I think that's the other thing they need to look at is whether they maybe do sacrifice maybe a little bit going forward to just make sure they get that digging at the start and they are still in the game as it, as it progresses. Now on the testing part for both of you, I'm going to start with you, Chris. Easy money for you. What's the prediction on the score? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm in profit now, so I'm I'm happy. I had them one each way, so Netherlands in the final is, is good times for me. Like you've got to say USA, but I'm not going to just because I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to jump on the the Norwegian hype train. I'm going to join the Orange Army. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be two one to the Netherlands. I think they will get an early goal. There's something in my water. Something in my water saying that USA, despite as dominant they have been, there's been so much made of this 44 goal, uh, 44 game where they've only lost once, which was a friendly against France. There's been that kind of... Netherlands have been, as we've talked about in the last podcast, a tournament team. Yeah, let, let's say a Netherlands win, but I'm, I'm not like super confident about that, let's be honest. USA 3, Netherlands 1. I'll say no more on it and find out that when the Dutch win 5-0, that sounds like a total idiot, but yeah. As easy as that. 
So we're almost at the end of what's been a fantastic World Cup in France. We have our final United States against Netherlands, but before that, the third place match on Saturday is England against Sweden. We'll be back at the beginning of next week to review both games. Thanks for listening. A chance for both of you to say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. And we'll speak to you at the beginning of next week. And by then, we'll know who our 2019 FIFA World Cup champion is. Thanks for listening. You are listening to the Anyone's Game podcast. For advertising inquiries, email agpodcast at yahoo.com.